welcome to Deeper, a podcast of Wollongong Baptist Church. The podcast aims to follow the sermon series and to take our congregation deeper into God's Word. I'm Sarah Leffley and we're recording a little late today, but still on a Wednesday. I'm impressed by us. How are you today, Mark? I'm good, thanks, Sarah. Good. You? I'm all right, but I've got a question for you. Mm. And I feel bad asking an additional question to start off with because you've got a casual 34 verses to get through. Yeah, we're going to cover some ground today. Yeah, but I do need to know about Napoleon. I was so baffled. I was surprised, in fact, by his quote because it seemed to really understand who Jesus is. Do you think he was a Christian? Um, I don't know whether I'm in a position to make an assessment of that. It's um, it's not – if you go hunting for quotes like that from historical figures, they're actually not that difficult to find because it does seem like uh, there was sort of a general acceptance of um, Jesus' special place in history by people for most of the last two millennia. And so it's no surprise that a public figure who's had a lot of his words recorded would say something like that. Um, but, you know, as with a lot of those kind of public figures, I, I don't know whether any of us can really say for sure that they were genuinely uh, converted or not. I don't know enough really about his personal life to say whether, uh, you know, there was evidence of that transformed work of the Holy Spirit in his life. Uh, it would be an evidence of being born again. I'd like to think so, but we'll find out, I guess, one oh, yeah, day. Yeah, one day, I guess we, we'll, we will, find we will out. or won't see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's, it, regardless, it's... Um, uh, we can appreciate the truth of the quote, I think. Yeah, that, that's um, true. You know, even if he's somewhat uninformed. As some of the people in this chapter that we're going to talk about, actually, they, in some senses they often speak more than they know, and that's not uncommon in the Bible to find people who are, you know, God is almost sort of making a, a, a declaration through them that's more true than they realise. Well, maybe that's what Napoleon was doing and he had that conversation with uh, one of his generals. That was his reply to a question that one of his generals was asking. So. Maybe. That's just struck me because it's just made me think that even the kind of negative comments of the Pharisees speak truth. If if Jesus wasn't God, the things he is saying yeah. really would be very yeah, heretical, yeah, yeah. really her- horrifically blasphemous. Yeah, so. who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, yeah. that's correct. True. Absolutely true. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's helpful. Well, with 34 verses to yeah. cover, let's start off with... Dive in. Um, I need to know about the analogy of the wineskin. That flew straight over my head. Can you explain <laughs> sure, that one, yeah, please? Yeah, I didn't touch on that on Sunday. There's actually two analogies there that are sort of paralleled with each other. There's the uh, new wine in the wineskins. And the cloth. And the cloth, the untrunk mm. cloth going on an old garment. I think the key to understanding what's going on there in verses 16 and 17 is to understand the little interaction that happens with John's disciples immediately before that, uh, where they come and they ask Jesus why he and his disciples are not fasting. And he, Jesus replies and equates himself with the bridegroom. What he's doing there is basically identifying himself as God. It's another one of those moments in the chapter where he's trying to say that this, he is the hope of Israel who they've been waiting for for centuries and the arrival of a bridegroom as in you know any wedding I suppose is a moment of celebration you wouldn't fast at a wedding uh, so hence my disciples don't fast now they seem to be coming with the expectation that well this is a religious thing that you do you know you're a disciple of a rabbi and like the Pharisees are well you got you fast that's just the Jewish expectation and so Jesus' response then with these these metaphors about the, the garment and the wineskins, I think what he's doing is basically t- saying, well, you're expecting me to follow those old patterns of Jewish religious life, but that's not. it's not the time for that now. Actually, a new thing has come, 
the new wine, the new cloth, that kind of stuff, and to try and uh, apply that into those old forms, the old vessels, if you like, the Jewish religious practices, it wouldn't be able to contain them now. This new thing is so new and so good that we need new new vessels for how we uh, receive it. And so I think what he's saying is that it, 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 Matthew will say elsewhere, that, and Jesus says earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, a few chapters earlier, that he's not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And I think kind of that theme is going on here again, that here is Jesus and life under him as his disciple is going to look different to what life as a disciple in the Old Testament would have looked like because he's fulfilled the law now and there are new forms and new practices that just don't make sense. It's a moment now of joy and celebration, the arrival of bridegroom. There'll be a time for fasting and uh, that sort of religious practice. There's going to be a place for that in following Jesus at some point once he leaves. But uh, for, for now, uh, they're mistaken to think that uh, that what it looks like to follow Jesus ought to look like what they've always known. No, it's, it's brand new. I think that's kind of what's going on. I'm really glad we studied the Sermon on the Mount all those months ago because mm. it's nice now looking at how Jesus is really living out all of the promises yeah. from the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, there's you know. a remarkably high number of connections in this next chunk that we're in. Mm. Uh, looking back to the Sermon on the Mount, I've been working on uh, Sunday's sermon um, today and uh, this coming Sunday. And again, just noticing the echoes from the Sermon on the Mount. You'll have to wait and hear it on Sunday. But Yeah, no spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned John's disciples. Mm. Who are they? And is there any evidence that they later kind of come to work out who Jesus is or do they just completely miss the point? Yes, good question. There's uh, slivers of evidence throughout the New Testament as to what kind of who these guys are and what their deal is and what happens to them. Uh, but you kind of have to piece it together. So mm-hmm. just sort of touch on some of the evidence. Um, in Luke's gospel, he does mention that there are this band of people who are, are like disciples of of John, and uh, he explains that they're involved in baptizing people with John, and they um, practice you know strict religious kind of adherence, kind of similar to what's being alluded to in that question. Hey, we we fast. Why aren't you guys fasting? They're obviously zealous in some way. Um, and uh, in, again, in Luke's version of this exact passage with the bridegroom uh, and uh, the wineskins and all that sort of thing, Luke's account of this actually mentions John's disciples uh, being the ones who are fasting and praying often. And so they seem to be uh, quite zealous Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luke gives us a lo- another little bit of info in chapter 11, um, which is Luke's equivalent passage where Jesus teaches his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer. And in, in Luke there, it mentions that uh, Jesus' disciples come to him and say, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. So there's some you know body of teaching that John the Baptist is passing on to his disciples there. He's got a bit of a following around the place and people know about him. There's a school, it seems as though, there's sort of following around John. Uh, but later in, in Matthew, uh, we, after John the Baptist is arrested and beheaded in chapter 14, Um, you find that John's disciples gather up his body and then they go and tell Jesus. So John's disciples, now that their rabbi has died, come and arrive to tell Jesus that his cousin is dead and that the the Elijah who has come before is now gone. You don't get any any more information about that, but it's fascinating that John's disciples seem to know that the end of their rabbi is going to have implications for Jesus. So maybe they're kind of joining up with him there. Don't, Mm. Don't know too much. Um, but we do know that there was this ongoing kind of following of John 
even after his death. It wasn't the end of his little group. Because if you remember when we were looking in the book of Acts, actually I preached a sermon on Acts 19 last year, where it's in Ephesus, Paul arrives, and there are some people who are disciples of John, and they've only heard of John's baptism. You remember this? Oh, yeah. And they haven't received the Holy Spirit, and so Paul explains to them that they must trust in Jesus, and they do, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And so there seems to be, even in Ephesus, you know, it's this this uh, gathering around John the Baptist has mm. moved all the way from Israel to Turkey at that point. Uh, and there are some people who are still disciples of John. So that's about it in terms of the explanation as to who these people are and, and what else they believe and that sort of thing and what happens to them. We're not too sure, but I think there's maybe some hints there that uh, some of them at least do turn to Jesus. And so maybe that means that as a whole, if they, they are that kind of devoted Jewish body who are waiting for the one who is to come, that's what they're going to ask Jesus in chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel. Are you the one who was to come? That hopefully many of them realize that, yes, he was. And they got off the John bandwagon and onto the Jesus bandwagon. But again, we'll have to wait and see, won't we? Yeah, a bit encouraging, though, remembering the story from Ephesus, because I was yeah. feeling a bit a bit sad about this. It's so sad they're following John and Jesus is right there, <laughs> yeah. so close and yet yeah. so far. Yeah. But I guess it's the same for the Pharisees who are here and so many of the other people yeah, so in close. these accounts. Yeah. yeah. The next question has about 15 in one, so okay. I'm just going to do little bits at a <laughs> Let's time. Let's break it down. Yeah. Sure. What, the first part is, what's the difference between a Pharisee and a leader of a synagogue? Yeah, sure. So this is uh, verse 18, the, yeah. the, the ruler, the leader that we meet there. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the the word that Matthew uses there is the word archon, which is just a general word meaning kind of ruler. And uh, it suggests that maybe he was... Uh, some sort of a figurehead in the community there or maybe on kind of the board of a synagogue. Um, Mark and Luke also describe this guy using the same term, but they actually name him. So this is Jairus, who Mm -hmm. you read about elsewhere in uh, Mark's and Luke's Gospels, where he seems to be, yeah, this sort of more of a a community figurehead in some way. And so I guess the difference there between someone like that and a Pharisee is that he's not priestly like a Pharisee is. Um, Yeah, he's more of a perhaps an administrator or something like that. That's a helpful clarification. I thought of them as being very similar, and mm. so I thought he was really kind of breaking the, yeah. the mould of the other Pharisees that you've no, just he's, read about he's at the start he's of the sort of chapter. adjacent to, to right. the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the scribes, but not sort of one of them, I think. And I found his faith um, interesting in that at first glance I thought, oh, this faith is a lot like the centurion. Mm-hmm but maybe not as exciting or remarkable. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus doesn't comment on it in the same way because he he seems to think the laying on of hands is important, whereas the centurion thinks Jesus can do it at a distance just with speech. Yeah. But then at the same time, this is a maybe more remarkable miracle in that he believes Jesus can raise the dead instead of just healing the sick. Yes. Is there significance to when Jesus lays on hands or just speaks healing is there any significance there? I think there? so, yeah. And I think that's right. We're supposed to see a, a parallel with the uh, the um, centurion back in chapter 8. And I think what's going on here is that there's a heightening of the story. Um, so the servant is sick in chapter 8, but here his, his daughter is dead, mm. and yet he still has the faith to ask Jesus. And I think that's really what Matthew's trying to highlight there. 
um, as at this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has not raised the dead. This is the first instance of that. There is a, a kind of an understanding that the you know the great some of the great leaders in the Old Testament were able to do that, Elijah and Elisha. But this is really kind of the first evidence of Jesus doing that. So it is remarkable that mm-hmm. this guy has the sense to know that here comes Jesus with the power of heaven uh, to do such a thing. Um, in terms of why the touching, why the placing on the hand. Um, I don't want to read too much into it because Matthew, again, he doesn't seem to sort of make much of it. But it is notable, would have been very well known to the audience, that Matthew's Jewish audience that he's writing to, that to touch a dead body was what made you unclean. It was one of the many things that made you unclean. And so in the context of uh, this story with the woman who's been bleeding as well, she has touched him and Jesus has not been made unclean. Mm. He's made her clean. And the same thing kind of happens with the dead girl that – to touch her would it would have made him ceremonially unclean, but instead it's actually the life of Jesus mm. that flows to her, not her death flowing to him. And I, I wonder as well whether there is Matthew is wanting to f- foreshadow a little bit that Jesus is is not afraid of death and that he's actually not afraid to get right up to it and to touch it. It's not just that he stands at a distance and fixes the problem. It's that he goes to it and dirties himself with it for the sake of this girl as he's going to do in his death on the cross for us to actually submerge himself into death for our sake. I wonder if that's part of why Matthew records that detail for us. That's lovely. I really mm. thought you were going to say, no, Sarah, we don't know. There's not enough information here. <laughs> that's much nicer. What yeah. beautiful imagery. I mean, I, I am, yeah. I'm speculating to some some points, again, because Matthew doesn't directly name those things, but there is um, there's, there's several instances of Jesus going and doing that which would have made him ceremonial unclean. So Matthew clearly has that as a category in his, mm-hmm. his, his mind as he writes the gospel. Um, and so I think it's fair enough to, to see another example of that here. All right. This is a big question for mm-hmm. me for the, the passage. Do all of these accounts of physical healing represent a deeper spiritual healing? Because I, I keep thinking of the leper mm. um, from chapter 8 where he seemed to have very genuine faith and Jesus heals him of his leprosy, yeah. but then he disobeys Jesus as his first act after being healed. Yeah. And that doesn't seem like, I don't know, it doesn't seem like the life of someone who is living in faith, but I also yeah. don't want to condemn someone that I don't yeah. know. So yep. yeah, are they spiritually healed or is it just a physically healing? Um, before I try and answer that question, I want to say I think the fact that you're asking that question means and that as readers we want to ask that question means that Matthew has accomplished his purpose in writing that chapter because okay. there's, there's a blurring of the lines there right and uh, I mentioned on Sunday that the word that Jesus uses to describe the healing of the uh, the bleeding woman is that her faith has healed her which is actually sozo Greek word meaning saved mm. it's this double meaning of oh saved really salvation like we thought she she just got well again, and so there's there is an ambiguity there. And as a reader, you're supposed to go, oh, I wonder what's going on here. Is Jesus bringing just healing, or is he bringing salvation? Um, I think that's that's what Matthew's trying to do. And so, did they trust him? Perhaps, uh, perhaps some people, probably not all of them. Um, one of the telling, uh, one of the ways that I reached that conclusion is that a couple of chapters later, chapter eleven. Uh, as we sort of get towards the end of this section, Jesus reflects back on his uh, ministry of miracles and healings, and he pronounces woe to uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida and other cities that the miracles that were performed in them, but they did not repent and believe. And so clearly on some large scale, by the time we get to chapter 11, Jesus can look back at all this that's happened and go, I did these miracles, but people didn't 
wake up to the fact that the Messiah was amongst them. So that's not to say necessarily that these individuals didn't, um, and for some of them perhaps there's more evidence that there is some sort of a truer understanding of who Jesus is, like the, with the synagogue leader. Um, but, yeah, you probably, we probably can't say definitively whether they all did or all didn't. Certainly some didn't, though. Um, but I think the takeaway for us should be, well, what is saving faith? That's that's what Matthew's trying, mm. to, trying to get us to think about. If this is if Jesus has this power, then is is the right response as soon as Jesus comes and and heals me? Is the right response to disobey him and go and run off and yeah. tell everybody when he told me not to? <laughs> well, probably not. You know, we, he's trying to provoke us to ask those kinds of questions. So, good question. Sorry, I don't have a better answer. No, that's okay. Yeah. I actually am more comforted by there not being a clear answer. Mm. Um, Oh, can I at least ask about the paralytic man? Can yeah, we sure. say he's saved? Jesus says his sins are forgiven. I feel yes, like that's a pretty yeah, clear... That's right. So he seems to be more up the spectrum of, well, oh, there seems to be good reason to believe okay. that, yeah, there is spiritual salvation that's come to him. Mm. But, um, yeah, beyond that, it starts to get a little bit blurrier. That's fascinating too because it reminds me of what you said on the weekend about um, it matters what your faith is in, yes. not about the size of your yeah. faith, because Jesus makes no comment about the size of that Indeed. paralytic man's faith, yeah. but certainly does make the comment that his sins are forgiven. Yeah. That is, I, um, I've got to say, I find um, this is, is something that I have thought about quite a bit. Um, and uh, one of the privileges in my role is that uh, we get to walk with people as they prepare f- for baptism. And uh, it's that's a, a joy and a responsibility to help people to make sure they understand what um, what this declaration is that they're mm-hmm. making publicly. And often the question I find myself uh, sort of asking after I'm meeting up with people and talking through their understanding of the gospel is, do they understand the gospel enough that I can be confident that mm. their, their trust is really in Jesus. And what is enough? You know, a mustard seed of faith surely is sufficient. This this woman's sense of wanting to reach out for Jesus, that there's hope to be found if she just gets close enough to him, that's enough according yes. to Jesus. And so I wrestle with that and think, well, who am I to stand in the way of those with small faith? Um, I don't want to be that person. I want to recognize that it's not the amount of their faith, but it's who their faith is in that's critical. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a challenge not to sort of begrudge people or to look down on people, cast aspersions on people because their faith is still young and small. Mm. Uh, if their faith is in the Saviour, then they are as saved as you or I. It's wonderful. And I am glad because you've asked my last question for me then. Sure. Because I couldn't word it. I didn't know how to say it. But in your circumstance of discipling people mm. towards baptism, mm. I mean, Jesus in the last chapter – has made the choice to warn potential followers of how hard it's going to be, but then yeah. in this chapter very freely seems to heal people with mustard seed-like faith. Yeah. So what, what balance do you strike? What balance should we strike when we're talking to people with mustard seed faith? Yeah. I think what, that's one of the, the marvellous things about Jesus is that um, we meet him in technicolour, not in black and white in the pages of Scripture, that there's nuance to him. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not just one thing all the time. And so on the one hand, particularly these last two chapters are showing just the boundless compassion of Jesus, that he is so much kinder to people than we would expect him to be. And yet, in the midst of that, there is a sobriety and a a seriousness and a, a side to him that then warns people about the cost of following him and that it's not all going to be uh, easy and sunshine and rainbows. And it, I, I just find Jesus so much more compelling for the fact that that's who we're meeting him as in Scripture. So which is it and, and which do we emphasize? Mm. I, th- I think it's got to be both and. Um, 
we, on the one hand, extend the invitation of Jesus as wide and as far as we possibly can and tell people that there is no one that Jesus will turn away if they come to him. And yet we also say, you must be aware that he asks for everything from you and that coming to him means holding nothing of yourself back. Your life is now his. You are his slave. You belong to him. Brand new life to be lived to the glory of God. So uh, I want to I do both. And that's, that is a delicate art, I think. And uh, I think certain people perhaps need to hear more of one than the other, depending on where they're at and their understanding and their kind of journey of faith, if you want to call it that. Um, but I think to do one without the other would be to misrepresent Jesus. If if we're permanent compassion, permanent openness, permanent acceptance with no warnings, no boundaries, no call to obedience, then we've misrepresented Jesus. If, if we're all uh, obedience, warnings, um, count the cost, but nothing of the joy and the freedom and the salvation and the hope, then we've misrepresented him. It is interesting that in the Great Commission, Matthew finishes his gospel quite um, wanting us to, I think, hold those two things together, that we are to go and, and make disciples of all nations, that this invitation to come is for all peoples on earth. And part of that is that we call them to obey Jesus. These things go hand in hand. Um, and so, yeah, as many things in the Bible, there's a tension and you have to sort of hold it together and uh, in conversation use wisdom, I think, to decide well, which are we emphasizing in this moment? What does this person need to hear? Do they need more of... The, the call, the invitation, they need more of the instruction and the uh, requirements around obedience to Jesus. That's really helpful. And I can testify, having been through the baptism process, that mm. you did that really sincerely oh, and thanks. lovingly. So thank you. Um, but it is a lot for me to reflect on. I'm thinking about um, school camps and altar calls and mm. experiences like that where I've been disappointed later yeah. um, that faith hasn't seemed to have lasted. Mm. I don't think that's the right wording, but that that's how it's felt. And um, it really reminds me of what Rod said last week about if you only give half the truth, then it is really a matter of yeah. that faith, you know, the seed being scattered on yes. on the road rather yeah, than right. on the soil. And yeah, yeah it's a challenge for me because mm. it's much easier to just say the good bit and not the hard bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jesus is refreshingly honest with us in in putting the cost of following him uh, right at the beginning of our journey in becoming Christians. And I think we probably ought to learn from that and do the same. Yes. And also I think um, a reminder to me to have a more eternal perspective because we can get so caught up in the short-term challenge hmm. rather than reflecting on the eternal glory. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Such a good thing to be reminded of. Um, one question I didn't write down, so you're unprepared. Can you remind us what's coming up um this weekend that we should be at? Yeah, I sure can. It's uh, Saturday, 10 a.m. is the first of our church plant info sessions where we're going to get together. Rod and Christine are going to spend some time presenting on uh, their vision and their plans for the church plant. Uh, I'll have a little bit to say in there as well. We're going to spend lots of time praying, uh, time for asking questions, fleshing out what it might mean for people to be involved. So we want to really encourage anyone to come along who's interested. That's not just interested in joining the core team and being a part of the church plant, but even people who are unable or not in the circumstance to do that, but want to know how to pray and support and perhaps thinking about financially supporting the church plant as well. All of those kinds of uh, reasons to come are well worth being there. So we hope to see you at 10 a.m. at the church on Saturday. Thank you. And as always, thank you to our producer who didn't just make this sound good this week, but also wrote a question for me. Thanks, Mike. This has been a Wollongong Baptist Church podcast. You can listen to past sermons and deeper podcasts and also find information about our Sunday services at our website, 
wollongongbaptist.org. 